This is God's word for us. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God, sometimes we, we come to a, a portion of scripture that um, at first glance provides what someone once said is, is darkness to our intellect, but I pray that it would be sunshine to our soul, that in this chapter that you reveal to us the things that you desire for us to hear, the things we need to hear, uh, it's a peculiar end through human eyes to this book. Um, but I pray and I believe that it's massively helpful for us. Your word is living and active, and I pray that as I preach it, deliver it to your people, the people that I love, I pray that you would make it effective through the power of your spirit to land on each one of us in a particular way, to shape us, to mold us into your image, to convict us of sin and righteousness, to motivate us to mission, that we be men and women who love you more than we love the things of the world and men and women who take seriously our charge to proclaim the proclamation you've given us. In this chapter, we'd see your glory as we gather this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you haven't been with us over the last uh, few weeks, uh, Jonah chapter 4 probably is most disorienting for you. Uh, but even if you have, chapter 4, if you haven't read it up until this morning, is it's a peculiar chapter. I think with probably without argument, personally for me, probably the most peculiar end to a book that I've ever preached. And I've got a friend who, when she reads books, she actually reads the last few pages before she reads anything else. Because she essentially wants to know if it's worth reading the whole book. Which I always found peculiar, but as I think about her and I think about my wife, Haley, when she watches a movie, she has to watch the, comp the whole thing. 
to get closure. Anybody else relate to that? So you can't just watch a portion and pick it up later. Like she's in for the long haul, whether it's Dance with Wolves that lasts three and a half hours or something shorter, she's going to be in. And we love happy endings, right? I mean, we love a story that ends well. And most of us, when we hear a story, we want at least a sense of closure and clarity. And in that sense, Jonah 4 leaves us a little bit short of what we desire. Because at least from a human standpoint, you look at Jonah and we leave with a sense of kind of disorientation and maybe even discouragement, like wondering, like, where, like, where did Jonah end up ultimately? Like, it's difficult to see his heart that was repentant in chapter 2, like it seems to be lost in, in chapter 4. <clears throat> and if we were determining maybe an alternate ending to the book of Jonah, my guess is most of us would say, Let's just stop at chapter three. Let's stop with Jonah preaching the word, obeying God, and seeing revival in the whole city. That would seem to be an appropriate ending to the book from a human standpoint. And if we're only looking at Jonah, I'd probably agree with you. If all we're looking to get is a portrait of Jonah, let's just end it in chapter three. Because chapter four doesn't leave him looking very good at the end. But maybe, just maybe, like in Ruth, we're actually not meant to see Jonah in the book of Jonah as much as we are to see the fingerprints of God throughout his story. And in that sense, like through that lens, Jonah's journey is an immensely helpful, it's an immensely human book. It's really true to life. Because you and I have our ups and downs, right? Anybody relate to that? Like we have some good moments where we obey God. We have some good moments where we say yes and we run into the city and we proclaim the proclamation and we have other moments where we are angry with God and we don't agree with what he has done or is doing. I would submit that's kind of what we see in this book. So Jonah's journey may not at first glance seem to be a source of encouragement or confidence if we're only looking at him, that really is the picture. The main idea I want to give you this morning is that the greatness of God's faithfulness exceeds the greatness of our failure. The greatness of God's faithfulness exceeds the greatness of our failure. This is true in chapter 4. It really is true of the whole book. And there's two main kind of sections in this chapter I want to break out. One is, is the angry prophet, and the second is the preaching plant. Because really this plant preaches a message to Jonah and it preaches to us. But the first thing I want us to see is, is the angry prophet, namely Jonah himself. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, obviously we need to understand what's the it. And if you go back to chapter 3, if you weren't with us last week, you haven't read this book before, you can capture it in verse 10, the very last verse in Chapter 3 says, when God saw what they did, namely that the whole city of Nineveh repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah. So Jonah is displeased that there was revival in the city of Nineveh. Just let that sink in for a second. He was angry about the fact that Nineveh repented of their evil and turned away from it. There's no escaping that. However long it took him to get there, he saw the response to his message, which was 40 days and the city will be destroyed. 
and they turned from their evil ways, and it displeased Jonah. The word for displeasure here is most commonly translated evil. Jonah saw God's mercy on the Ninevites as evil, and it made him angry. Jonah's hatred for Nineveh caused God's mercy toward them to look evil, distasteful in his sight. Now, if we don't have a little bit of backdrop, we might tend toward being judgmental of Jonah. But let me give you just a little snippet historically of Nineveh, or particularly the Assyrian Empire. So Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it's relevant because it really does paint the picture of what this city, what this empire was like. In 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah is placed historically in the mid-700s B.C., under King Jeroboam, king of Israel. And the Assyrian Empire is, is, is the world power at that time. <clears throat> and they're renowned for cruelty and wickedness. Archaeologically, historically, when someone knows the Assyrian Empire, they are known for cruelty and wickedness. A couple quick pictures of this. A king that I'll call King Ash, because I don't want to try to say his name. I haven't practiced. Who reigned in 880, 883 to 859 was known for hanging his enemies on posts and flaying their skin and lining the walls of the city with their skin. Pretty intense, right? His son, Shalmaneser III, continued in his footsteps. It's said that he stacked human heads like totem poles. And Nahum was the prophet in the Old Testament who prophesied against the coming judgment of Nineveh. It's an interesting book. You can, you can read about the judgment that ultimately would come to Nineveh decades later after Jonah preached his message. And he says this about Nineveh. He says, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. You get the picture, a little bit anyways, right? So the archives of history preach clearly the evil of Nineveh. But here's the deal in this story for us. The repentance of Nineveh preached something to Jonah that he did not want to hear that God's grace was much bigger than he ever could have imagined. And he didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to see it. He certainly didn't want to celebrate it. In fact, it made him angry, disgusted that God would forgive such an abhorrent group of people. He was glad to deliver a message of judgment to Nineveh, but he wasn't prepared for them to repent, and he certainly wasn't prepared for God to relent from the disaster that he had proclaimed was going to come. So Jonah prays, a prayer of displeasure and anger, but a prayer nonetheless. And in verse 2, you probably heard me read it, it says something like this, and I'll paraphrase. Like, this, this is why I ran from you in the first place. So if you go to chapter 1, we see God's word come to Jonah, tell him to go up and go to Nineveh and proclaim a message to that city whose evil has come up before God. So Jonah is showing us right now the reason that he ran away from Nineveh and to Tarshish was not because he feared for his life against the Assyrians. It's because he was afraid that God would forgive them. 
How profound. It's like, I knew that you were going to do this. I knew that you were gracious and merciful and abounding in loving kindness. I knew it. And that's why I ran to begin with. It's interesting, right? Jonah knows the truth of God's character. You see it in verse 2. Look there with me. Look at what he says about God in his prayer. So that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You hear those words, and they echo so much of the Psalms. I mean, those words are like an anthem in the Psalms. Gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is the character of God. Jonah knew the truth of God's character. But here's what I'd submit. He knew it, but he misapplied it. Or maybe more appropriately, he underapplied the truth that he knew about God's character. Let me illustrate what I mean. If you go to Psalm 86, verses 15 through 17, we'll have it up here. It's one of the many places where this language that Jonah prays is echoed in the Psalms, or really he's echoing the language from the Psalms. In verse 15 of Psalm 86, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Does that sound familiar? In verse 16, it says, Turn to me, this is psalmist, you God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, turn to me, be gracious to me, give your strength to your servant, and to save the son of your maidservant, or me, show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And you read that psalm, there's very much this kind of inward focus. It isn't wrong in the psalm, but I wonder, as I've been thinking about this this week, I just wonder if in Jonah's eyes, like he was ready to receive, and he knew very well the, the graciousness and the mercy, the bounding love of God for him. He just couldn't apply it to others. Like the same, like deep grace that God had showered upon him that we, we've seen in the book, right? Have we seen that a little bit? Like the great way in which God has sustained and rescued this resistant prophet. But he doesn't have a category for the way in which that would be displayed and given to other people, namely those who were his enemies those who were evil in his sight. Maybe we could say it this way. Grace for me, shame for them. Show me your favor, show them your wrath. Turn to me, turn away from them. Jonah's heart was too small for a grace so big. And Jonah's grief and displeasure were so great that he asked God to take his life. There's no shying away. This is like despondency. Like his grief was so hard-hitting, he's like, it'd be better for me to die. It'd be better for me to die if to live means that I've got to watch you show mercy to the Ninevites. I'd rather you take my life. I can think of no more extreme ways to articulate displeasure. I would rather die than to watch you demonstrate your grace to these people. And it's wild to read, and we want to kind of soften it, but there really is no softening it. 
because Jonah was apt to receive and enjoy the grace of God, and certainly he had, but he didn't have a category for God saving the very people that he preached judgment to. And the Lord asks him simply, and he phrases this question twice in a subtly different way about the plant later. So the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? One commentator rephrased God's question in this way, essentially saying, is it right for you to be angry about me doing good? Are you really angry about me doing what's right and righteous? Jonah's heart was too small for a goodness so big. One of the ways I'd say this for us is if you become displeased with the works of God or if you find yourself calling God's goodness evil, don't be surprised when you find yourself alone somewhere sitting in a hut by yourself. Because ultimately, displeasure with the things of God and the character of God will drive you away from God himself and drive you away from other people. This isn't just some kind of clever way to draw upon the picture. It's notable that what happened with Jonah is his displeasure for the sin of other people. Do you see what happened to him? It led to distance. I'm just going to go far away outside the city and just wait to see what happens with this city. His displeasure, his distaste for the work of God, the grace of God, and for these people, the world around him, Nineveh, caused him to put distance between himself and those people. Not just merely physically, but spiritually. Because somehow he saw himself worthy of the grace of God, but not others. And so he distanced himself from them. Jonah's displeasure led to distance, distance from those in need of the message. Maybe the question for us to ask at this point is, how about us? Like in a world that's increasingly hostile to the things of God, in a world that doesn't want to hear about the name of Jesus, in a world that's hostile to the word of God and the works of God and the character of God, do we find our displeasure creating distance between us and the world? So much so that we stand in judgment from afar, not engaging them with the truth of the message that is the only one that will save their soul. Does our displeasure, as it were, distaste for the things of the world lead to distance? And you can connect this passage to mission or commission. One of our three C's is a church, Christ, community, and commission. A commission is essentially summed up as in every single one of us need to embrace our God-given responsibility to make Jesus known in our world. And when you think about this temptation to pull away from the world, John 17, 14 through 18, there's a little glimpse of what Jesus prays for us, this wonderful chapter that gives us the heart of Jesus for his people. This is part of what Jesus says. He prays to the Father. He says, I've given them your word, And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Family, some of what I think we need to hear this morning 
is that we can't allow, we can't allow our displeasure for things that go on in the world to detach us from the mission to be in the world preaching the gospel message. So just practically, we can't remove ourselves functionally, like locationally, proximity-wise from those who need to see the light of Christ and hear the message of the gospel. We can't remove ourselves positionally, proximately from those people. But then at a heart level, at a spiritual level, we can't somehow begin to think that we're entitled to the grace of God that nobody deserves and that our neighbors desperately need to hear about. And it was both and, I would submit in Jonah's case, and I would submit it's both and for us sometimes. It's not just merely let me close my garage door quickly so I don't have to engage my neighbor. Behind that closure is a heart that says, you know what, I don't care much about how much the grace of God is needed across my alley. I'll just sit outside the city and just see what happens. Far be it from us to distance ourselves so much from the world that we lose our sense of mission and urgency. But here we have the angry prophet, and next we have the preaching plant. Such a peculiar but a story I have grown to love over this last week or so. As you look at this strange picture of the plant, it's almost like one of the most vivid sermon illustrations in the whole Bible. So in verse 6, it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So this is deeply ironic, and here's why. It's because God appoints a plant to shade Jonah and save him from his discomfort. So if you look back at verse 1, you remember the word up there, displeased or displeasure and discomfort, those are from the same root word meaning essentially evil. So it could be said this way. God shields Jonah from the discomfort brought on by Jonah's displeasure. So he was displeased with God, and so he moved in such a way, made choices in such a way that ended him up outside the city where he needed a plant to cover his head for shade. And guess who provided the shade that he needed? The God that he rejected. What grace? Do you see yourself in this story? Can you take a minute and think about yourself and the very choices that landed you in a place of discomfort, that God is now shielding you from the very effects of those same choices? Like, what a gracious God. What grace. As a result, Jonah's exceeding displeasure is exchanged for exceeding Gladness, at least temporarily. But then God appoints two other things that aren't as pleasant to Jonah in verse 7 and 8. But when dawn came up the next day, just take note of this word appoint, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plan? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And, and we might be tempted to cry foul here. <clears throat> but this seems really cruel. 
of God, to give him a plant and then cause a worm to eat it just so it would be destroyed. And now Jonah's like, hey, I thought you'd give me the plant. And you can see him. Like, he's like the pouting prophet now. He's like, oh, man, you gave me the plant. Now it's gone. Like, what am I going to do now, you know? <laughs> but I wonder if maybe like, God doesn't take the plant away to rob Jonah of his gladness, but to teach Jonah of God's goodness. And this is a theme in the book. Like God appoints things, both good and hard, in order to, to point to his mercy and his grace. And the plant is just another one in that list of things that God appoints. Let me illustrate this through, there's four different specific things. Verse 17 in chapter one, the Lord appointed a great fish. And Pastor Bill, one of his first statements preached, I think it was in week one, he says the great fish is intended to lead us to the great grace of God. God appoints a fish, swallows up Jonah, leads him to a place of like ultimate desperation, becomes his prayer room. And it's the grace of God that rescues Jonah in the belly of the great fish. But that great fish is intended to lead us to the great grace of God. Chapter four, verse six, the Lord God appointed a plant. This undeserved plant leads us to the undeserved kindness of God. We just talked about that a second ago. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Verse seven, <clears throat> here's how I summarize this. The failure of temporary things leads us to our permanent source of gladness. The failure of temporary things leads us to our permanent source of gladness. And there's a question that came up in my mind when I thought about this. Because it seems silly. Like Jonah loves a plant. I mean, really, it's like a gourd. You can laugh, it's all right. Like he, he loves this plant. Like he's just heartbroken that the plant is gone. But you can see yourself there. And the question is kind of like, what plant controls your gladness? Now, what temporary thing has a lock on your heart? So much so that it's all you see when it ebbs and flows because it's inconsistent. It doesn't matter what it is in this world. Gladness may come in a moment, but it's going to be insecure and stable at best if it's not found in God himself. What plant what plant controls your gladness? So God appointed a worm, verse 7, verse 8. God appointed a scorching east wind. I would say the blistering wind makes us faint, but guides us to the refuge of God who renews our strength. Isaiah chapter 40, I can't think of any better place to illustrate this. Isaiah 40, a passage that's probably familiar to many of us. But if you take notice of how many times the word faint shows up in that text, verses 28 through 31. I won't have this up here, I don't believe. I'll read it for you. It says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. So if you feel like you're gonna faint, you know what you should do? Go to the one who doesn't faint. Because there's one who doesn't faint and he doesn't grow weary. When you feel weary, go to the one who doesn't get weary. You feel like you're about to faint, then cling to the one who doesn't faint. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The blistering wind makes us faint, but ultimately guides us to the refuge 
that God alone can provide to renew our strength. And this whole plant thing and exchange leads us to verse 10. This is where we'll stop. Well, that's where the book stops, so we have to stop there. So, Verse 10, verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Here's what I'd say. This plant preached a message of pity. There's two usages of that word. It's translated compassion in a lot of places. It's translated spare, like spare me. But the word compassion rings true. This object lesson revealed Jonah's superficial pity for a silly plant and a lack of compassion for the eternal souls of 120,000 human beings. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He had no love for them. But God wants him to understand, like, you don't love them, but I love them. Like, I love them, and I have compassion, and it's right for me to show compassion to these broken, lost souls. You show pity for a plant you didn't even labor for, and it springs up, but I made 120,000 people to live in this city. Should not I have pity on them? And we need the plant to preach to us this morning. We need the plant to remind us not to let our affection for anything in this world diminish our compassion for the lost. We need the plant to preach to us this morning not to let our experience of God's grace make us feel entitled to it. And we need the plant to preach to us this morning that we might not let the deep rebellion of the world harden us to God's love for the people in it. And family, I would say this is true, generally as believers. When we love God, we'll move toward the people he loves. When we love God and we follow him, our hearts will increasingly be conformed to his image, meaning that we'll grow in compassion for those who do not have the Savior and don't know him. Because we talked about this before, when Jesus, when he was in all his interactions with the world, as it were, and his ministry, you see so many times, like he, he saw the masses, like he pulls on to the shore from being in the boat, and he sees the masses waiting there for him. And one of the ways that we see his eyes for the world is he looked out on them and he had compassion for them, for he saw them distressed and dispirited as sheep without a shepherd. And as his sheep, having come to know him, we increasingly have the eyes of the shepherd for the world. And the book of Jonah reminds us time and time again, it declares the greatness of God's faithfulness, which exceeds the greatness of our failure. And this is my last thought as we close this book. God has the final word in the story. God has the final word in this story. It's notable, like it would be actually a little bit more difficult if the, if the book ended with verse 9. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Chapter 4 would be even more difficult if it ended there. But notably, maybe in a more subtle way, God is the one who speaks the last word. If our lives, our decisions, maybe just contemplate this for a moment, 
Our words, our prayers were chronicled in book form. Think of that just for a moment. Like if your life, your decisions, your prayers were chronicled like the book of Jonah in book form, my guess is our lives would look a lot more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. But we're also similar in this way, is that God is the one with the last word in our story. Thank God our salvation isn't best on, let me personalize this. You should thank God, as I should, that your salvation isn't based on your best choice or your worst choice or your last choice. Your salvation is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And the multiplied voices of my failures and your failures, they speak a word of condemnation over us. But the Bible says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the word of retribution that our sins are owed. And so as we take communion this morning, I know we're going to be a little bit long this morning, but we're going to take communion this morning, and it really is an, an echo of that truth that the blood of Jesus the body of Jesus speaks a better word than, than the multiplied voices of our wrong choices. So we can be forgiven. Not because of our best day, not because we're qualified, but because Jesus has qualified us. And he speaks a word of compassion and pity, forgiveness, redemption, and rescue. It's good news, right? I'm going to ask you to bow your head for a minute. <clears throat> Just consider the weight of God's grace in your own life for a second. God, if we're honest, our hearts are often too small for a grace so big. Uh, our minds are too small for a goodness so big. But you have a heart for the nations. One day as your people, there will be a moment where we'll be gathered with the multitudes. The, the believers in Iran, Nigeria, China, that we prayed for this morning, that we'll look and we'll see a sea of the redeemed. That God, in some mysterious way, you know your people, you know your sheep, and you call them by name, but yet you use us. You use us to proclaim the message that you've given us, and I, I pray, God, that you'd give us your heart for the world. Give us your heart for people. That we wouldn't find the culture and the way it 
rails against you is so distasteful that we put distance between us and those who need you most around us. Every single one of us needs to hear that. Every single one of us needs to grow. God, we thank you for your great grace. Grace that's greater than all our sin. Thank you that in the face of the multiplied voices of our failure, that your blood, Jesus, speaks a better word, a complete word that vanquishes, removes all of our our sin and the consequences for it. We love you. We thank you.